Nine weeks we're going to spend in this book looking at the life of Daniel. Uh, the book, by the way, of Daniel is half prophecy and half story. Uh, we're going to spend focus our time on the story, not the prophecy. We'll touch a little bit on prophecy, but the main reason is just lack of time. We're going to finish this up right before Easter. And um, we're looking at the life of Daniel, one of the most extraordinary men who ever lived. He lived about 400 years after King David, uh, basically 600 years before Jesus. We meet him here in Daniel as a youth, a young guy of perhaps 14, 15, 16 years old, snatched away from his family and home and carted off to a foreign land. By the time he disappears off the page of Scripture, he is in his 80s, possibly his low 90s. He starts off, as I said, as a foreign captive but as a foreign captive is promoted by three different kings in two successive empires to the highest possible position of authority and power and honor under those kings. I think that's a record that is unmatched by any other person in all of history. He's one of the few main characters in the Scripture of whom there is not one word of failure or fault or criticism. In fact, God Himself, as, as John noted just a few moments ago, God Himself in Ezekiel chapter 14 makes comment on Daniel's noteworthy righteousness, listing him as one of the most righteous men of history. So we have a lot to learn from that kind of a guy. And if that's not enough, Three times God says of Daniel, He says, you are greatly loved. Daniel was an extraordinary man. Let's come to the Lord in prayer and ask His blessing as we seek to learn from this life. Father, we are so grateful this morning to be here. We are so grateful for Your Word that You have left us authoritative, inerrant, infallible, to give us guidance, to reveal Yourself to us. And it is a word that is, as Hebrews says, living and active. It is powerful. So we ask this morning that You would work through Your Word to do a work in our heart. That we wouldn't just be folks who hear words and who gain knowledge, but that we will be people who are transformed through Your living and active and powerful Word. So open it to us this morning. Show us Yourself in Your Word. Then may Your Spirit take that Word and transform our lives. This we ask for our good and for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. You know, if network news and cable news and internet news feeds and social media had existed back in the late 7th century B.C., then the stories dominating our screens and lighting up our Twitter feeds in those days would have been actually sounding very familiar to the stories that often come across our news today. They would be stories 
and news of Middle East conflict. At least was until the current presidency when now most of the news is about that. But the, we've had lots of news still even today about Middle East conflict. The prime concern and debate for some ten years here at the late part of the 7th century B.C. And by the way, to just help us understand those numbers, that's like the early, we might think the earlier low 600s. So it's 612, 610. For about ten years in those in those in that time period, the big news was the decline of the great Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire, if we put modern day boundaries on that map, the Assyrian Empire was centered around northern Iraq, northwestern Iran, and eastern Turkey. That's the, the epicenter of the Assyrian Empire, which stretched over and throughout all the Middle East at this time. It had been a dominant power in the world for, or the dominant power for, uh, a couple of hundred years, but at this point in time, the power of Assyria is declining. And from about 615 on down, what is happening is there is a rise of Babylon, which is today's Iraq. A rise of Babylon to power. In 614, the forces of Babylon captured Ashur, just up to the north. Two years later, in 612, they destroyed the capital of Assyria, which was Nineveh. Two years after that, in 610, they defeated the remaining Assyrian forces that had fled to the city of Haran. Then, finally, at Carchemish, in the spring of 605 B.C., under the leader of General Nebuchadnezzar, the son of Babylon's king, the Babylonians roundly defeated the military forces of Egypt there in Carchemish where they had come up to try to come to the aid and rescue Assyria. Instead, they got defeated and Nebuchadnezzar and his troops pursued the Egyptians down south along the Mediterranean coast. So the big stories of 605 B.C. showing up on your smartphone and on your computer and on your TV would have been about the demise of Assyria and that Babylon finally in the spring of 605 had officially become the new world superpower. The second biggest story of the year was that in about August of that year, Nebuchadnezzar broke off his pursuit of the Egyptian forces and abruptly returned to Babylon because he had received news that his father had died and he had to rush home to ensure that he was a successor to the throne. That's what all the world would have been abuzz about in 605 B.C. But what interested God the most was likely things that had been overlooked by most of the world as matters of little interest. What would have likely been but a little blip on the news cycle radar of those days 
And so it is through most of human history that what is of great interest to God is typically of little interest to man. And vice versa. By the way, if I may say, that is one of the great dangers of being a news junkie. Where you immerse yourself in you know, all of the, the latest headlines and the latest news and that's what you're just focused on the majority of your time because the reality is that God's priorities are usually very different than those of CNN and NBC and even Fox. What interested God in 605 B.C. was very different And we find it here in the opening verses of Daniel. Daniel 1. Follow along with me as I read the first three verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, or Shinar, which is Babylon, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. See, probably lost on the great news stories of the day was that Somewhere along the way, before Nebuchadnezzar broke off his pursuit of the Egyptians and hurried back to Babylon, he made a stop in Judah, Israel. And he besieged the city. And Judah fell to Babylon and he took precious articles from the temple and the best and the brightest of Israel's royal and noble youth and hauled them back to Babylon. While that information was not very big and very important to the world stage, it was foremost on the mind of God. You see, We might think it's because what happened here is that some guy just beat God's people and took God's stuff. And that's likely what most people who cared thought. And they asked one big question most likely at this point in time. And that is, where is God? Because from every human perspective, God, represented by His people, just got beat up. And God's stuff and some of God's people got taken back. And God's stuff got put in the temple of an idol. How could God allow His chosen city to be captured? His temple to be sacked? Temple treasures profaned and placed in the temple of some false god and God's people subjugated to a pagan king and the best and the brightest of Israel's youth 
to be ripped from their families and carried 500 miles away as the crow flies to Babylon to live there as hostages. The answer to that question or those questions is one of the three most important lessons in the book of Daniel that we will, it permeates the book. We'll see it come up again and again as we go through the book. Because what appears to happen from human perspective is typically wrong. And it is here. See, it appears that Nebuchadnezzar, an ambitious, powerful king, has just defeated God's plan and God's purpose. But do you note what it says there in verse 2? Look again. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God. See, one of the big lessons of the book of Daniel, and this morning we're going to note three big lessons in the book that we'll see come up again and again in the weeks as we go through this book. One of the the first big lessons is this. God is sovereign. God is in control. Where was God? He's in control. It says, and the Lord, the Hebrew word there for Lord is the word Adonai, which means Lord. <laughs> what that means is He's sovereign. What that means is that, that nothing happens outside of His permission. Nothing happens outside of His knowledge. Nothing happens outside of His plan. He is the sovereign God. And as the sovereign God, even though it appears that He's out of control, even though it appears that He has lost here, even though it appears that some pagan king has beat out or thwarted God's purpose, God is accomplishing His great purposes and promises. What Nebuchadnezzar does not know, what he is unaware of, is that he is simply doing, he is simply carrying out exactly what God has intended for him to do. Jeremiah the prophet says this, Jeremiah chapter 25, God speaks through Jeremiah and says, Behold, I will send for the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. (laughs) Do you get that? Not that powerful king, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. Nebuchadnezzar is simply doing what God has intended for him to do. The psalmist wrote, the the heart of the king is in the hands of God and he channels it wherever he wishes him to go. But that raises another question. Well, if this is all God's doing, then why would God allow such a thing? Why would God allow this pagan king to come in to subjugate his people to loot the temple, to take some of his people hostage. Simply, the answer is, and there we could give several, but 
The simplest answer is that God is doing exactly what He has said He would do. We have to go back in Israel's history, back long before this king, long before even the, when the kingdom had divided in the north and south, when back before the United Kingdom under Solomon and David before him and Saul before them, even back before the time of the judges, 400 years of the judges, we go back almost 800 years or so into Israel's history as the, the people are there of Israel, they are about to go into the land having come out of Egypt, having spent 40 years in the wilderness because of their disobedience, that generation died off. A new generation is there. Moses is there with the people. Deuteronomy chapter 28, going over the law once again for this new generation. And as Moses lays out the law, Deuteronomy chapter 28, he says, God has promised great blessings and prosperity to you, His people, if, you will follow Him if you will obey Him. But if you do not, God will bring discipline upon you. And if you continue, finally, ultimately, what will happen is God will exile you from this land. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 36, The Lord will bring you and your King whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. He's going to take you out of the land and move you out. You're going to stay there, by the way, he says, until you come back to me. Then I will bring you back. Well, God had promised it. The nation, though, in its history, during in the ensuing centuries, they would at times follow God and then they would walk away from God and move into to disobedience, move into sin, move into idolatry. God sent prophets for the two centuries before this. God had sent prophets with the message of warning. Turn, follow God, or else He will do what He said He will do. The northern kingdom never listened. And a hundred years before this, the northern kingdom was taken by Assyria and they were taken out of the land. Despite the prophets, despite the example of the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom, continued in... They, they had brief moments where sometimes they would come and follow God, but they were in this, this continuing spiral down into sin and into idolatry and into rebellion. And finally, God said, enough. And God sends Nebuchadnezzar And Babylon subjugates Israel. Takes some of the treasures and takes some of the best and brightest. That's what's going on here. Move on to verse 3. The king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish and good of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, excuse me, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. 
Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So Nebuchadnezzar takes these young people to Babylon. We don't know how many, perhaps 20, perhaps 50, perhaps 100. Only four here are named, but there were certainly others. We see that later as the story unfolds. But there are also certainly not terribly many because this was a select group from the nobles and royals. So already it's just from the upper crust of society in Judah. And from them, they select only those who are physically good-looking. Those who are physically without defect. They are physically healthy. They are attractive. They are intelligent. They are well-educated. They are discerning. They have a personality that is capable of serving in the king's court. In other words, it describes everybody in this room. Nebuchadnezzar takes all these to Babylon and institutes a three-year program to take these good Jewish boys and the aim is to transform them from good Jewish boys to good Babylonians. From boys who are loyal to Judah and to Israel and to their God and to get them to be loyal to Babylon and to the gods of Babylon. He brings them to Babylon, separates them from Israel and from the influences of godly people. He indulges them with Babylonian luxury, food and drink and, and lodging for a, fit for a king. See, all of these things are to seduce their allegiance and their allegiance and their, their uh, affection. He gives them a Babylonian education to get them to think like Babylonians. He has them immersed in Babylonian literature and a Babylonian culture in order to get them to feel like Babylonians. He has them learn the Babylonian language so they talk like Babylonians. He gives them new names so that they are called like Babylonians. We don't have time to look at them all, but it's worth noting and going back and looking on your own that they each one have names. Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. Each of those names means something. Each of those names honors God. As they are carried off to Babylon, they are given new names. Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They are all God-honoring names, just not of the real God. They're names that honor the gods of Babylon. All of these things deliberately and intentionally to shape and to change and to conform these young men from good Jews to good Babylonians. And the situation of these Jewish youth raises another question which is the second great lesson of this book that we will see again and again. And that is this. 
How can God's people live faithfully in Babylon? How can God's people live like godly people in a pagan culture? How can God's people live in a God-honoring, impactful way in a godless and hostile culture? And that's a very important question because it's a very important question for the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, because in just a few years, it won't just be Daniel and a handful of folks in Babylon. It will be the entire population of Judah. They're all going to be exiled to Babylon over the next 20 years. And while they are going there exactly because the majority of the nation has been running from God and has been living in sin and rebelling against God and worshiping idols, there are those who are faithful who will be wanting to live as godly people. They need to learn, they need to understand how do you live as a godly person in a pagan culture? And even for many of those who will have been, who have been rebelling against God, but they will finally get the message when they get hauled off to Babylon. They may say, God, it's time for me to start living like what I've said I was. One of your children. How do I live as a godly person in a godless place? And you realize, even as I say that, that that's an important question for us today. Daniel stands as an example for Israel and for us today as how do you live as a godly Person, how do you live an impactful life for God in the midst of a godless and a hostile and a pagan place? We need that message in America. Understand that our enemy, who is not the media, our enemy, who is not the culture, our enemy, who is Satan, is aiming to do to you and me the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do with these young men, with these boys. He was trying to move them from good Jews to good Babylonians. Satan wants to move you and me from good followers of Christ to followers of the world, the world system, which is his system. And he uses, and it's a good study to go back, he uses these same methodologies to separate us from godly influences, to indulge us in luxury, to give us elite, to, to change us through our thinking with education, to change us through feeling, through culture, to change us through the way we talk, etc. So the Apostle Peter writes to you and to me and he says, you and I, we need to live our lives here as strangers here in reverent fear. He has said, and we've gone through this book not long ago, he says there in 1 Peter, we are aliens and strangers in this world. We are citizens of heaven who are living here in a world where our nations, our cities, our neighborhoods are filled with people all around us who are not followers of God. We are people living among a hostile and alien culture. How do we live as God's people in such a place? 
and in such a way that we impact our culture. Quickly moving through the story, I want to just note three helpful answers to that question right there. How do God's people live faithfully in Babylon? Verse 8, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. The first key for how we live a godly and impactful life in a godless culture is we need convictions. If we're going to live godly in an unbelieving world, we have to have firm convictions about what is right and what is wrong. Derived and taken from what God says in His Word. And we then need to be firmly resolved, as Daniel was, not to violate those convictions. It's real easy to have convictions when they're not being tested. Hard times, difficulties do not produce convictions. They reveal them. Babylon revealed the convictions that Daniel and his friends had. Daniel apparently had decided, I can live in Babylon and I won't violate my convictions. I can attend Babylon University. That's not a problem. I can study Babylonian culture and Babylonian literature. I can learn to speak Babylonian and I can live with whatever name you choose to call me. I can do all of those things and I am fine but and not violate my convictions, but Daniel said, I draw the line here at the food. And we read that we go, huh? The king is saying, here guys, it's a banquet for a king. The king's buffet, the king's drink, and it's being served to you. The best Babylon has to offer and it's yours. And most of us would go, I'm in. Get me a fork. And Daniel says no. And his friends say no. Even though apparently from the story here, all of the other captives said, yeah, bring me a fork. And we wonder what's going on. Daniel and his four friends, we can't say for sure why. They said we can't do this. Perhaps, very likely, it might have been that the food that's being served violates what the Mosaic Law, the Old Testament Law, said they could eat. You know that there were dietary restrictions in the Old Testament Law about what they should eat or shouldn't eat. Maybe the spread that's here on on this buffet is in violation of that. Maybe that's the problem. Or maybe that wasn't the problem. What the problem was, was that the food, before it made it to the buffet table, it had gone by the temple to some god in Babylon and was there offered as a sacrifice to the god and then brought and put on the table. And to eat of that food was, knowing where it had been, was to knowingly associate and identify with the worship of some idol, some god. Probably one of those two things might have been something else. The point is, whatever it was, Daniel and his three friends here all said, we can't do that. 
If we, we can do these things, but when it comes to this, right here, this violates our convictions. This will compromise our loyalty to God and it will compromise our testimony and we will not do that. If you and I are going to survive in a godless place, we need convictions like that that we hold firmly and resolutely as Daniel did that are built upon the Word of God. Do you have convictions like that? Because we will not stand as godly people if we don't. By the way, very quickly, as young boys, I wonder where they got these. When they're coming from a culture that is being in the process of being disciplined by God because of their unbelief and their faithlessness and their godlessness, where did these guys get these convictions at age 14, 15, 16? It doesn't tell us, but if I had to give an answer, I would say it was probably from mom and dad. These boys probably had moms and dads who followed God. Maybe it was an uncle and aunt, a grandparent, or a Sunday school teacher, Sabbath school teacher. <laughs> in these young men's lives, there were people who invested in them, mentoring them, modeling for them, instructing them in the Word of God, encouraging them to live and stand for God. All that happened long before they got to Babylon. Babylon didn't create it in these young men. It revealed what was already there. May I say, brothers and sisters, that's why it is so important, moms and dads, that's why it's so important, youth workers and Sunday school teachers and Awana leaders and nursery workers and everyone here, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, why it's so important that we invest in our young people. You need to Invest your time and your energies in training and discipling, in modeling, in being an example and encourager of the next generations. Because we do not know how much more time and opportunity we have with any one of them at any time. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Verse 9. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. Compare them and us. Do what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and he tested them for ten days. And at the end of the ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. I just have to say one quick little note, by the way, because I've read out there of diets built around this passage of Scripture. Just be careful of fads and read your Bible because it's silliness. What folks do sometimes in the name of Scripture, 
And diets built around this is silliness for several reasons. First of all, this was necessity, not choice. It wasn't, hey, let's, let's get in better shape. Okay, let's change our diet. We're going to eat vegetables and stuff. No, it was, we have to do this or we'll defile ourselves. Secondly, I noticed that it's, it was a lifestyle, not some little fad that they did for a few months. It's a choice they did because they're not going to defile themselves. Thirdly, we have no specifics of exactly what they ate and didn't eat. How can you build a diet with no specifics? Lastly, very shortly, did you notice verse 15? If this is a diet, which everyone that I've seen about this is a diet and how to lose weight, verse 15, they were fatter in flesh. Read your Bibles. Don't follow fads. Okay, sorry. Did you notice how Daniel handled this matter though? They were firm with their convictions, but they were respectful. They were thoughtful. They were considerate. Second key that we're going to need if we're going to live godly and impactful lives in Babylon is we need civility. We need convictions, but we have civility. Having convictions is no excuse to be rude. We are to be kind. We are to be gracious. There are Christians who do an awful lot of damage to the cause of Christ by being condescending, by being argumentative, by being self-righteous with their convictions. Verse 17, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, And in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. A third key, if you and I are going to live godly and impactful lives in a pagan world, we need to be people not only who have convictions and who have civility, but we need to be people of excellence. It is true that God has called you and me to be different from the world around us. He has said, come out from among them and be holy. First Peter, it says, you are chosen by God that you are in the King James. It says to be, you are a peculiar people. And for years, most folks grew up thinking what that meant is we're to be weird. But may I say that is not what the Scripture portrays when it says we are to be different. We are to be not people who are weird. We are to be people who are exceptional. Followers of Jesus Christ should be like Peter described in 1 Peter 2.12, those who live such good lives among the pagans so that though, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. And glorify God. We are to be folks as followers of Jesus Christ. As God followers, we are to excel in every way that we are able. We should be the hardest workers, the most thorough workers. We should be the most faithful and dependable and trustworthy of workers. We should be the best citizens. We should be those who are cooperative and agreeable and honest and respectful. Those who serve others rather than serving ourselves. 
We should be the best of students, those who are who work hard and study hard and respect authority. We should be the nicest of people, those who are helpful and kind and generous and who are pleasant and who encourage other people rather than destroying other people with our tongues. Those who build people up. We should be those who develop and use our abilities as best we can. Our talents and our gifts. Whether they are in music or art or athletics or intellects or science or whatever, our skills and abilities, we should work our best to hone them and use them and invest them for Jesus. As Paul wrote to the Colossians, he says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. And he goes on and says, because it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Folks, that is what Daniel and Hanani and Azariah and Mishael did there in Babylon. They didn't make it to the top of the pile by being slackers who were lazy and saying, here we are in Babylon. Well, what do we have to do today? I don't know. We have to do this. Okay. They kind of do it sloppy. They went in with everything they could and they honored God by excelling in everything they could excel at. They did it to honor God. If we, we don't do it to get ahead. We don't do it to get rich. We don't do it so people will praise us. We do it because we're out to please Jesus. This brings me to one last point. The third major lesson in this book of Daniel that again comes up again and again. See, Daniel did apply himself. I believe he worked hard and he served with excellence. And Daniel was a good man. He was gracious and he was kind. He was a man of integrity and conviction. He was all of those things and we should likewise do and be those things. But none of those things are the key to Daniel's greatness. They are what he did and they are what we ought to do, but they are not the key to Daniel's greatness. The key to Daniel's greatness, you'll see it in verses we just read. Look back at verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. God expects for us to serve Him with all we are and all we have. He expects us to be people of integrity. He expects us to be people of grace and civility. But you see, anything we accomplish, anything we do, any greatness we have will only be because God does it in us and through us. Here's the third big lesson of this book. God is with those who trust in Him. Even in Babylon. Daniel had a life of great impact because he greatly trusted God. Pastor Aaron said it well in his message last week. It isn't about being a better person. It is about trusting Jesus. It's about clinging ever more tightly to Him. So brother and sister, no matter what your circumstances, no matter where you live, no matter where you come from, no matter what problems are in your life right now, no matter what difficulties you are going through, 
The message is this, that if you and I will look to God and trust in Him, He is with us and He will accomplish His purpose in us and through us. Even if the mess that you are in is of your own making because you are running from God, which is where most of these Israelites will be when they end up in Babylon a few years later. The message is if they will turn to Him, trust God, cling tightly to Him, He is with them. and He will work His purpose through them. Jesus said, Lo, I am surely with you always. Matthew 28. I'm surely I'm with you always even to the end of the age. A passage that we know well, Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works together for the good for those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. In other words, if you love God, if you're seeking to follow Him, He will work His purpose out in your life. He will work things out for good. See, things aren't so much different for us from Daniel's time. The lessons that are there are for us. We'll see these three lessons again and again in this book. God is in control. Daniel is showing us how to live as godly people in an ungodly place. And his life is a testament that God is surely with those who trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, we need this lesson. Because the reality is that we... we often get discouraged. We often get frustrated. We often get get tired and we're ready to quit. How we need to remember that You are still in control. No matter what the circumstances, You are on the throne. How we need to remember, how we need to understand that You desire for us to live as godly people, even in an ungodly place. And that if we look to You and we trust You that You will give us lives that matter, lives that make an impact, You will enable us to live godly and faithfully even in difficult places and at difficult times. So may we cling to You and love You and trust You even as Daniel has been an example us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.